again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host, and I'm the Executive Director of the Connecticut Certification Board. Today's discussion is brought to you by Recovery Network of Programs, whose mission is to restore hope, health, and well-being for individuals and families in a recovery environment that embraces compassion, dignity, and respect. RNP has served the greater Bridgeport area here in Connecticut since 1972. And if you have an interest in working alongside other committed professionals at RNP, please go to https colon forward slash forward slash recovery-programs.org and click on the careers link. On behalf of the board of directors and staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. A recent expose by Mother Jones Magazine showed that in September 2007, as overdose rates soared to their then highest point in history, physicians in our country were prescribing enough opioid pain medication for every adult in America to have a bottle in their medicine cabinet. The American Medical Association, rather than addressing the issue with a call for restraint and more conservative prescribing practices, actually suggested that physicians were still too tentative about narcotic prescribing, going as far as saying that the actual risks involved were simply misconceptions about who actually was dependent. Additionally, in June of 2020, the AMA penned a letter to the Centers for Disease Control to provide their opinion on the CDC's recently published guidelines for the prescription of opioid pain medication. In that letter, the AMA took quite an inductive leap, suggesting that prescription-related overdoses may be leveling off due to several factors, including the reduction in overall number of prescriptions written. Yet here in my home state of Connecticut, we had a 21% increase in opioid medication-related deaths in 2020. The ugly politics of this aside, the fact remains that the public shutting down of those pill mills doctor's offices did not sufficiently address the issue as it would be led to believe. It seems as if the AMA is not ready to police their own profession for the sake of public protection, but we do take a look at one organization that is attempting to improve the awareness and knowledge of prescribing physicians, health professionals for responsible opioid prescribing or PROP. Our guest today is Kat Marriott, PhD, Executive Director of Healthcare Professionals for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. She's a passionate, strong, flexible, and innovative director with broad-based program management experience in nonprofit, academia, life sciences, and research industries. She's a proficient project leader with the passion to build, train, motivate, and mentor successful teams to collaborate and deliver outstanding performance through positive engagement. Dr. Marriott has over 18 years scientific experience and experience as a project manager for organizations in public health, infectious diseases, virology, drug development, and discovery in vaccines. She has a proven aptitude to develop strategy and utilize workflow processes in a fast-paced environment while multitasking. Dr. Marriott has significant experience in higher education and is very passionate about public health, infectious diseases, and vaccination efforts. I'm very pleased that she accepted our invitation to join us today. Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Um, I, I think you just, you read the, the top part of my resume. So thank, thank you for that. <laughs> I think it's from LinkedIn. <laughs> so oh, okay. Close um, enough. Okay. Pretty close. Well, it's impressive. And so I wanted to give you all the credit you deserve. Um, oh, thank you. For many of our listeners, this is going to be the first exposure to health professionals for responsible opioid prescribing. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the organization from its genesis to where you are today? 
Sure. So um, uh, healthcare providers for uh, responsible opioid prescribing, um, basically um, known as PROP. And from, from here on out, I'll just refer to our organization as PROP, um, has uh, been around for a little over 10 years. At the, uh, at the height of what many would say was the opioid epidemic, um, uh, several, uh, several uh, physicians and healthcare professionals in and around the opioid prescribing world got together because they, they saw this alarming trend that um, prescription, opioid prescriptions were just skyrocketing on, you know, and with no correction whatsoever, um, no regard for what was really um, appropriately, um, you know, evidence-based, um, you know, back prescribing um, uh, practices. And they got together to, to try to, to address the issue. And at first it was just a, a loosely organized group of concerned physicians um, Dr. Andrew Kolodny is one of the forming members and is still um, uh, still uh, you know part of the uh, uh, part of the organization as well as many of the other um, physicians that that started the organization. But it it really just started as a as a collective, and um, eventually became a, a, a nonprofit organization. Um, but really, it really just came out of the um, observation that um, opioid prescribing was just, it, it was out of control. And that the messages that physicians were getting uh, about opioid prescribing were not only skewed and tainted by the pharmaceutical industry, but really just flat out wrong and were not based on you know, any scientific data, any evidence whatsoever. So um, they, they started this, one might say, uh, or call it a crusade. And one of the first, um, uh, one of the first projects or, or the first um, um, elements that the organization started was to, to create a document called Cautious Evidence-Based Opioid Prescribing or is more commonly known as the myths and facts of opioid prescribing. And um, this, this document um, was endorsed by several organizations, including the American College of Medical Toxicology, the New York State Office of Alcoholism and State um, and Substance Abuse Services, and, and several others. And that document is still referenced by um, many physicians, many organizations today, even though it was um, it was written in 2010. Um, so, and after that, the the, the organization just can continue down the road of advocacy and education in order to try to correct and stop the the trend of opioid overprescribing. Um, they've, we've been involved in a lot of different advocacy efforts um, over the years, and um, we continue to be um, heavily focused on advocacy and education when it comes to opioid prescribing, evidence-based opioid prescribing practices, and the over-prescribing of opioids today. 
one of the things that, that you had mentioned that kind of jumped out at me is, is um, it's really about evidence-based and, and, mm-hmm. and, and combating the myths that are out there. And in this era, which we live in today with the advent of social media and the influence that information on social media has on anybody, whether it's fact-based or not, really can dictate attitudes. And it's important to have facts out there for medical professionals, mm-hmm. for physicians who know to combat that. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. And one of the things that we try to do is um, share and disseminate some of the, you know, it's it's difficult to, to capture and disseminate all of it, but to share and disseminate those, those um, you know, evidence-backed, evidence-based research um, articles, peer-reviewed research articles that are not tainted by big pharma mm-hmm. that, that really hit to the heart of what is going on and not only uh, addressing why opioids uh, shouldn't be prescribed in certain circumstances, but how and when a reduction of opioids can be a beneficial situation and that, um, you know, pain relief is um, just as satisfactory, if not um, more satisfactory, without the presence of opioids. With with kind of the role that uh, PROP is serving, do you see it as sort of a, a de facto watchdog group as to what's going on in the industry and in the field? Um, I, I think that some would say that there are elements of what um, what prop does w- that have a, um, a, a watchdog um, type persona, but really uh, there are other there there are other organizations and some of which that we are um, you know closely associated with, such as Farmed Out, that are really focused on that um, uh, that element of of being. Uh, being more of that watchdog and pointing out not only for just opioid prescribing, but uh, in a, in many areas of um, pharmaceutical and um, you know the, the just industry influence. So really, our efforts are really really focused on advocacy and education. But there are some elements of the projects and what we do that that could be considered um, watchdog. Um, although um, really it's, you know, education is more at the, the heart of what we do. It, and like other organizations, I'm guessing it's hard to, when you're providing education and advocacy for, for what evidence says and what science says, um, the idea of the watchdog, I think, is, is implicit in everything that we do with that because you're putting out, you're trying to combat misinformation um, and address that. You know, that's true. When I first um, was looking into prop, one of the things I think that it, when you first hear the, the name of the organization and what you do, you would think it's an organization specifically of individuals like uh, addiction physicians and researchers and, and things along that line. But it's not the case. I mean, it's really a wide ranging organization um, made up of physicians and, and health professionals from uh, many different specialties, be it pain medicine, rheumatology, emergency. Um, why is that wide range of specialties so important to the work that you do? Well, it is critical because um, if you think about all of the different um, professions, physicians or 
um, uh, those individuals that are capable and might prescribe opioids. It ranges. I mean, it is across the board. It is not it is not just addiction medicine and it is not just, um, you know, primary pain um, uh, physicians, but everything from um, emergency room physicians to to surgeons, to anesthesiologists, to dentists, mm-hmm. to and and believe it or not, psychologists and, um, you know, opioids, unfortunately, are still um, used to treat migraine headaches, which it is, it, it, that's, that really is, is not an appropriate indication whatsoever. So there's a myriad of healthcare professionals that are capable and might prescribe opioids. And all of those individuals are part of the process. But on top of that, there are a myriad of healthcare professionals that interact with the patients and the parents of those individuals that might be getting those opioid prescriptions, and they're they're part of the solution as well. So it's not just the dentist, but it it's also your you know your dental technicians or the individuals that might um, be interacting more with those patients in that setting. It's the physical therapists, it's the nurses, it's the pharmacists, it's um, the physicians' assistants. It's there are um, a, just a myriad of healthcare professionals that interact with people that are either receiving opioid prescriptions, might receive opioid prescriptions, or that are are currently on opioids, either um, long-term or short-term, that need to to understand what what are the right indications? When are opioids truly indicated? When are they not indicated? And, And, Plainly, what is an appropriate uh, dose? The, the days of getting a uh, a 30-day supply of, of OxyContin for a molar extraction or a root canal, those days should be long gone. And it's the responsibility not only of the dentists and the dental hygienists and the, the technicians and the individuals, all the individuals within that, that um, dental practice to understand this to articulate this and and to basically to to not do it any longer. So it's not just the physicians that are prescribing the opioids, but it's it's all of the healthcare professionals that are touching touching any aspect of an opioid prescription. You know, and you mentioned dentistry and and I remember some time ago when my uh, now adult son was getting some invasive dental work done and when he left the doctor gave him a prescription for two oxycontin tablets um one for when he got home Better. and it would help him deal with the pain and sleep and then one for the next day and then the rest he said you could probably use tylenol and and that sort of thing and i thought that um you know i was beginning to really work in the the uh opioid treatment field at that point and saw that how valuable what they were doing was um and certainly opioids for a chronic condition like migraines is is just something horrible waiting to happen. It's dangerous. It's very dangerous, but it's still it's still happening. And so it is through the education of those prescribing physicians that um, that we that we can change that trend. And, you know, as um, you know, as a scientist, as a, a doctor, as an a 
um, a public health specialist, it it has to come from the data. It has to come from the evidence. It can't, you know, it can't be a a moral or an ethical issue. It has to be a data and evidence driven um, issue where where we change the the trends of of opioid prescribing. One of the things that, that I see in the SUD prevention, treatment, and recovery industry um, is that we tend to look at things as good or bad. It's one mm-hmm. side of the spectrum or the other is not in that gray area. Um, you know, things are either good or bad, right or wrong. However, you know, the belief that the prescription who may have, I mean, the uh, physician who may have overprescribed opioids has done so because of their own moral and ethical failings is absolutely untrue. Um, you know, it's, it's not about their moral turpitude. It's maybe education. Can you address some of the realities of, of overprescribing? So there is no doubt that, um, that in the past, um, you know, uh, there have been, uh, morally corrupt, uh, physicians that have used the, the prescribing, um, used, uh, prescribing of opioids in order to, um, uh, financially, uh, you know, forward themselves, and there there have been numerous um, you know cases of you know documented pill mills where these you know these physicians and individuals are were just um, you know totally disregarding any uh, any appropriate um, measures. But the the days those days are are numbered and definitely fewer and far between. Um, there, you know, there does exist still, I want to say, uh, some hot, hot spots, if you will. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, for the most part, the prescribing practices are um, have been perpetuated because they were ill-advised to begin with. Mm-hmm. This um, concept and this message that opioids are safe, and they are um, they are the best and the most um, the the first line of pain control and the the best pain control for all types of pain from from acute to chronic to to cancer to autoimmune and everything in between. That that's a it was never evidence backed, and b it's just it's just flat out wrong. So the the general trends of overprescribing um, weren't necessarily, for the most part, out of um, you know a moral or, or ethical failing, but um, really um, you know, a lack of knowledge, a lack of information, and a tainted message. No physician wants to be responsible for setting a patient on a path of opioid dependency and addiction and certainly overdose. Mm-hmm. Or I believe that the, the, the physicians, uh, aside from the ones that are really morally corrupt, that, that no physician really wants to do that. But until a physician is presented with, with the correct knowledge, with the evidence not only to not only to show that opioid prescribing is not a a good practice but what are the alternatives that there are appropriate alternatives and that that 
these physicians can manage their patients' pain through other measures that are just as effective, if not more effective. That is when um, the tide really, really turns. But um, it is, it's really, um, for the most part, um, a, lack of, a lack of knowledge, a lack of information, and a lack of education. Yeah, and the skewed message that they get um, from some of the educational providers. Uh, and we'll get into that yes. a little bit later, but I think that becomes an issue. And what I like uh, as yes. I'm listening is the just the name of the organization for responsible opioid prescribing. You're not saying opioids are the enemy. You're saying the overprescribing no. and creating of no. folks with dependence issues is the enemy. And that's what you're fighting. You know, opioids as a first line of defense to somebody in my generation doesn't make a lot of sense. I could have had a broken arm and my mother would have said, rub a little dirt on it or walk it off when I was a kid. That's just right. kind of how we dealt with things. Um, but but I, I, I really think that the message of, of what you're doing is important in talking about that. Hey, these docs aren't bad men and women, you know, an overwhelming majority of them. They're just mistaken. Uh, it, and we've... Yeah, and we hear that message from the physicians themselves over and over that for years they were prescribing opioids kind of nonchalantly and um, just assuming that, you know, everything was going to be okay. And then when some of these patients came back and expressed that they were um, they were now addicted, um, you know, it's it's an eye-opening experience that several Several of our members and several of the people that that work prominently with Prop have, you know, have expressed that they did not know that the prescribing practices that they had been um, following for many years was, was creating dependent and addicted patients, and they don't want to do that, and they didn't want to do that. And now they know better, and yeah. um, and and it's an important step, not only to educate themselves, but to help educate educate the others. And the the you know ethical code of of beneficence, you know, first do no harm. They really didn't. They thought they weren't doing harm. And and I talk about that when I came into this okay. field. Um, the way I learned to interact with folks receiving services would. Get, I would never get a job if I did that today, and my credentials would be taken away for ethical, uh, for ethical reasons. But that's how they did it at that time. As we developed new in, uh, techniques and interventions that were much more recovery friendly, we we kind of went along to the, with those, and that's what I think is one of the messages that you're you're pushing. What yes. are some of the things that you're doing from an advocacy standpoint today that are kind of high up on your your board of priorities? Oh, so uh, Prop has involved has been involved in a lot of different um, advocacy efforts, from um, uh, changing the uh, upscheduling of certain opioid um, uh, based uh, opioids, and um, and creating um, better better rules, better regulations, um, enforcing um, the. Uh, the reporting of of um, opioid prescribing, but um, currently um, there are there are a handful of advocacy efforts that we've that we are actively involved in and, and have been involved in, um, and one of them again it, if 
if it might fall into what some of them, some people might say is a bit more of a watchdog role. Um, currently, the, the FDA has an interim or a, an acting commissioner. There is no appointed or, or full-time FDA commissioner. And a lot of different um, names have been thrown out there in terms of who would be an appropriate person to, to fill that permanent role. And um, one of those individuals that has been brought up in terms of um, being nominated for, for this position is uh, Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath. And um, PROP has joined um, several organizations to oppose the appointment of Dr. McMurray-Heath. She is currently the president and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. And over the years, she has represented the interests of several hundred pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies that are regulated by the FDA. So she represents basically an industry-friendly and an industry-tainted voice, which we firmly believe is not an appropriate uh, position for the FDA commissioner that um, PROP, as well as many other organizations, have um, urged President Biden and the FDA to ensure that the, the, the next FDA commissioner is, um, is absent of these industry ties um, in, as, in as much as possible and definitely is not um, influenced or has having large big pharma conflicts of interest. So that's um, that is one item. That's a huge one, um, and that's along, an ongoing one because I remember it started it with with not just Prop but a lot of other organizations saying that uh, the interim director Janet Woodcock is that mm-hmm. you can't give her the job because of her role right. and how OxyContin was approved. Uh, in the in, in the, the early place. days, yes. and and that was very successful because it's been stated she's not a candidate for the permanent position. But the battle goes on on that it, it, because public safety is at risk. It is, and there are you know there are a lot of actions that the FDA is directly responsible for when it comes to um, opioid prescribing practices as well as. Um, the, for the safety of, of patients, but as well as the, the education of physicians prescribing opioids. And um, another effort um, that um, PROP has been involved in is that the FDA has been considering um, mandatory opioid prescriber education, which one might say, great, that's, that's awesome. Let's make sure the, the current situation is there is very little that is required of a physician to write an opioid prescription, but the burden is extremely heavy on a physician that wants to prescribe opioid treatment medications such mm-hmm. as Suboxone. So it's skewed. And the education really, the education burden really needs to be on the opioids themselves and um, make sure that that prescribing physician is fully aware and is, is fully educated on what those practices should be. So the FDA is considering 
this mandatory opioid prescriber education. However, it is just as important that that educational material be absolutely void of any industry influence because that's part of how we got into this problem to begin with. So if we cannot have transparency into what that educational material is and who is writing it and how is it being delivered or even who's funding it, then that that's a big problem. So it must be a transparent um, situation and it must be void of any industry influence. And that's a subject that's been talked about for a long time in terms of, and certainly uh, physicians struggled with the idea of, of having to take the waiver course and everything through ASAM mm-hmm. to be able to prescribe buprenorphine or, or methadone. And, and actually, uh, I was lucky enough to have a small role in SAMHSA's uh, release of the new guidelines in 2016, I think it was, 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. We, got, we had some, uh, some language put into that, um, that that I was happy to be a part of. Um, they've recently updated that as it, it's looking to be more of a physician kind of control that's medications for addiction treatment, not necessarily medication assisted treatment. But the fact that the what created the issue goes unchecked really d- didn't make a lot of sense. Um, right. Which it, kind was, of, it was very lopsided. And it kind of goes into my part of my next question is, is part of the American way of thinking is we like simple solutions because they fit in little uh, blurbs in the USA today with color pictures. And we say, hey, this is a simple problem. We solved it. Um, you know, we'd like to believe that addressing these pill mills, you know, along, along Route 75 in Florida actually solved the problem where we were, Purdue was bankrupt, going to bankruptcy. Um, that doesn't solve the problem because the realities of the current situation are much greater. And Prop addressed this in, in July in a press release. Can you, you Talk a little bit about that press release and the information contained. Right. Or that so, information. Um, that, that press release, yeah. So th- that press release um, was in response to a, um, a report that came out um, about um, the uh, CDC report that um, came out um, basically with the, the raw data of the overdose, overdose rates, overdose deaths, and how it, it has been climbing dramatically over the past uh, couple of years and especially escalated um, these these past two years um, in the wake of, of the COVID pandemic. And you're right, there, there is no simple solution. There is no simple answer in order to, to address the opioid epidemic. But many, many individuals pointed to the fact that opioid prescribing rates have uh, dropped since their peak in uh, 2012, 2013, and that it's been on a steady decline. Um, However, prescribing is still still high. It's still very, very high. In fact, the United States still prescribes more opioids than any country per capita in the world. So the, um, the opioid prescribing, uh, addressing opioid prescribing, it cannot and is not and is never going to be the end-all be-all or the, the solution to the opioid epidemic. But it is. it has to be one part 
It has to be one spoke of that wheel, because mm. if we do not address that, then we're then we're just feeding the demon. And um, we know that um, still overdose deaths still at a high rate are involving prescription opioids. If they're not personally prescribed to that individual, then they're prescribed um, to uh, you know a friend or a family member um, that 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 person has um, you know has in you know illegally taken, and that over seventy percent of illicit drug um, users, heroin users, indicate that they started their path on prescription opioids. So where did they come from? If they weren't personally prescribed to them for a legitimate medical reason, again, they they got them out of your uh you know your your medicine cabinet or their grandmother's medicine cabinet or their friend's medicine cabinet or a a person on the street that they, that was selling a you know these prescription opioid at a um, at a rate that was, um, you know, easy, easy for them to make a, make a buck. Mm. So we know that addressing the use and overprescription, overprescribing of opioids has to be part of the solution. It's not the all, it's not, not the, the final solution. It's not the, um, the only solution, but it has to be part of the solution. And the rest of the, you know, the rest of the circle, the rest of the pie is made up in, in, you know, a lot of different areas, addressing treatment, addressing how, you know, what are the alternatives to opioids, um, addressing socioeconomic issues that that get people in in these situations to begin with. Um, Health equity is, is a huge problem and it is a problem you know, these are all issues that prop is concerned about, but we have to stay in our lane and we are addressing overprescribing and responsible prescribing mm. practices. There are plenty of other organizations that we partner with and that we will collaborate with in order to address and to, to touch upon some of those other aspects of the solution. I think that's an important message that yes, it's, it's an incredibly complex problem, and and I don't want to pat myself on the back for this podcast, but we've talked previously about uh, sociological aspects that are kind of fueling it. Um, I, I just scheduled one. There was an article in NPR yesterday about how physicians, uh, pharmacies are, are getting their ability to get to prescribe, you know, to supply buprenorphine taken away by some DEA rules that don't fit and fun mm-hmm. things, but recognizing that hey we're going to stay in our lane and we're going to do what we can we know that's not going to solve the problem but it's part of the solution that doesn't make good media and and it wouldn't uh, and won't be promoted you know widely in this in this country because it it doesn't simplify things it recognizes how difficult and how problematic saying well we're going to focus on our role and then the prevention folks have a role to play and everybody does uh and i really think you know, one of the things I find interesting um, is your organization uh, statement on CMEs that are funded by the pharmaceutical industry, which I often think is overlooked. Mm-hmm. I've had experience with that. We would do trainings on best practices to treat individuals with opioid use disorders for um, non-medical providers. 
for the clinicians mm-hmm. and the social work things. And we worked with a couple of pharmaceutical companies who agreed that the grant that they gave us, the small grant to, to fund it, um, they were, uh, we would not use brand names. We would not promote anything. They were really unrestricted educational grants. And then there was one who said they would give us money when we talk about medication, only if we use their brand name. And we said, you can keep mm-hmm. your small $5,000 because we don't do that. We talk about buprenorphine and methadone. We don't talk about brand names. Right. So, um, uh, and, and, you know, Prop had a statement in the British Medical Journal about this. And I think that it's overlooked. Can talk mm-hmm. a little more about um, what should be an unrestricted educational grant, but really isn't. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and this goes back to, uh, honestly, the, the very, very beginning, and um, I want to say how, uh, how we got here in the first place, that the um, educational material, the marketing material that was being presented to physicians far and wide were coming directly from the pharmaceutical companies that were actually making and selling the drugs that they wanted these physicians to prescribe. A lot of a lot of people don't even realize that still to this day, many many medical schools um, students receive um, receive books, they receive um, uh, medical journals, they receive continuing medical education seminars, uh, webinars, and um, and really um, and access to professional associations through the funding of pharmaceutical of the pharmaceutical industry it's not just the it's not just the opioids um, and the opioid makers this is across the board um you know if there's a you know uh, a a conference for um you know gastroenterology chances are part of that conference is going to be funded by a, a pharmaceutical company that is making a a, a medication that specifically addresses or is going to be prescribed by those physicians that are part of that conference. So um, the the medical education and the marketing is just littered, littered with um, industry influence to this day. And um, it is important first that, that that educational material and that marketing material be first fact checked and um you know and not be allowed to to present um, any false information but also when it comes to general education about about disorders about diseases and about you know whether it's pain management or whatnot that it is not skewed and it doesn't come across as a commercial that's really really important but unfortunately and I know this personally that coming out of coming out of grad school and coming out of medical school, you know, medical students walk away with their degree with a whole bag full of basically promotional material for specific drugs and specific, um, you know, solutions to a lot of different, um, you know, diseases and disorders. And they, and that comes straight from the pharmaceutical industry. How do we stop this? And, um, you know, it, it's, it's got to start. And there are more and more medical schools that are, um, 
that are addressing it. But you're right, these these small educational grants that are that come with a with strings attached, that's all part of it. Um, and again, there were there were days when um, you know entire research papers and um, entire research projects were completely funded by a particular pharmaceutical company specifically to show that their product was superior or that did you know did a b and c when the, you know these are these, these were not necessarily peer reviewed um, studies and or um, really um, you know ethical and or um, the, you know they were not void of these these conflicts of interest yeah and, they and say- it's part yeah, it's part yeah. of all of our responsibility. Yeah. It's to, qualitative. To it's not quantitative. That. It's a qualitative study. You know, so we don't we right. don't necessarily need the peer review. But when I was working as a social work intern in the '90s, my office was furnished with stuff from pharmaceutical companies. I had a chair. I had a clock. I had pens. I had all the different. Ones. And they would come in on every Tuesday and meet with the docs. And most of our docs, mm-hmm. because we were community clinics and we don't have the time, go away. Um, but, you know, I know they changed the rules, but there were times they were taking docs on yes. cruises and things. It's changed oh, yes. significantly. But, you know, there's a reason that Seroquel is prescribed so much now for, for things other than what it was initially described for, uh, you know, it was just like studied, you know, off-label stuff because of the marketing, mm-hmm. um, you know. That's right. It, it, so, and the and idea that pharmaceuticals, we have to remember their businesses and they're trying to make money and that's what their focus is. And, and their shareholders. And when we, when we grasp that, we can look at things a little more clearly, I think. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. I want to talk about your website a little bit because I think it's fabulous. I think the information on there is incredible. So there's a lot of resources for people, uh, professionals at all levels for the community on the prop website. Can I get you to expand on some of the things that are available on there? So one of the things that um, that I try to do is um, keep keep the website fresh with new um, cutting edge and really important um, uh, research that is that has has recently come out addressing you know opioid opioid prescribing practices and and especially addressing how and where opioid prescribing can be uh, reduced or be more responsible without negatively affecting um, ne- negatively affecting the patient. Um, certainly, there's information there about. I want to say the the big the the news uh, the the catchy news items like the the opioid litigation, and then also um, information about the um, the multiple. Um, uh, state and federal uh, legislative uh, pieces that are either um, recently been adopted or are in the works or are coming down the pipeline. One thing that has absolutely exploded out over these past couple of years are these um, various state and federal uh, legislative acts, many of which are are excellent. Again, they are evidence-based, um, you know, pieces of legislation, and um, and really are worthy of support. A lot of them are just checking a box, like I'm, 
you know, the governor or the, the state representative of, you know, such and such state. And I'm I'm going to show my people that I'm I'm doing something to address the opioid epidemic. So I'm 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 put this bill together and I'm going to get it passed and and it's going to do X, Y and Z when we we know based upon the data that those are just some of those are just kind of feel good uh, acts that are just checking the box to say that those people are addressing it. But many, many of them, um, one of the uh, one legislative act that is coming up um, that is currently in the, the House um, Health Committee is the Opioid Patients Right to Know Act of 2021. Um, it's in the health, the House Subcommittee on Health. And this is a this would be a, a federal act to require physicians to to have that conversation and to inform patients and parents of patients before they write that opioid prescription. What are the risks? Um, what are alternatives? And then also to to give them to give those patients resources. And part part of that that bill would also be to require the choir requires CDC to fund educational efforts in order to provide those physicians with the right information before they start prescribing or before they have those conversations with those patients. So um, pieces like that are really are important uh, for us to support, but also important for us to share um, with our members. And then beyond that, we have a lot of, there's a lot of videos and articles that really talk about the the origins of the opioid epidemic. Where did it, how did we get here? And um, uh, again, you know, what are the facts around opioid prescribing practices and resources such as the uh, University of Washington telepain series that um, we have um, shared on our YouTube channel that are a series of webinars that anyone can watch. A lot of these are provided um, with with CME credit, but um, anyone can watch and and listen to um, experts talking about all kinds of things from from tapering, appropriate tapering, opioid tapering practices to alternatives to uh, using opioids in anesthesia. Um, so there's there's a lot of resources, and I try my best to keep it to keep it fresh and to um, to add new content to the website as often as I can. What what impresses me most is is I like the videos. I think they're great ways to get information out. Um, they're in you know they're small bites that people can kind of uh, work with. But I also like that you're not afraid to post articles from alternative media, which is going to do a little more digging. Um, in many cases, because they're not looking for the glitz of the headline. Certainly, you know, Mother Jones wants to promote Mother Jones, right. but their work is 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 pretty deep. Um, it's clear yeah. that somebody does not need to be a physician to get involved with prop. There are many ways that somebody right. can be involved. How can people get involved and learn more? So um, a couple of ways. First, you know, go to the prop website, um, www. Uh, supportprop.org. 
Um, we have a, a regular newsletter that we send out um, that contains all kinds of, of uh, again, links to podcasts like this and um, videos, educational videos, research articles, um, interviews on, you know, on in different media outlets that involve um, some some of our our, our prop members. Um, so subscribe to the our newsletter and and frankly um, support us. Mm. Um, prop exists exclusively on donations primarily from private individuals and private organizations. We accept no money whatsoever from any pharmaceutical, biological device, organization, none. Um, so, and when I say that, that we operate on an extremely lean budget, you'd probably be shocked on by, uh, how, how, uh, lean and, um, we are. So prop exists strictly through the donations of individuals like yourself, like me, like my family and, and other physicians that are, um, uh, you know, concerned about this. Uh, for for just one second, um, Jeffrey, I want to um, get just a tiny bit personal. I came to Prop because Prop was looking for an executive director, which I could, um, you know, I could um, operate and, and serve as the executive director of many different types of organizations. But I came to Prop specifically because. Not only am I concerned about the opioid epidemic as a public health and an epidemiologically um, concerned scientist, but um, in 2016, I lost my sister to overdose. And she was first prescribed opioids because of, a, a, because of chronic pain because of, be from her autoimmune disease. Mm. So her autoimmune disease was never going to be cured. It, that was going to be something that she would live with for the rest of her life. But she didn't have to live with an opioid epidemic for the rest of her life. She was prescribed opioids and was placed on chronic opioid therapy uh, fairly, uh, fairly early on in, in her diagnosis. And um, frankly, things got worse. And in, um, and, in 2016, we lost her to, um, to an overdose. She, like so many other patients, turned from prescription opioids to black market prescription opioids, and then to illicit opioids, heroin, and uh, prob probably fentanyl-laced heroin. Mm. It, is, it, is, it is just as important as for people like myself like my family and and people that have lost a loved one to to the opioid epidemic because of prescription opioids to get involved to show your support and to do what to do what you can and and that all, that might be something as small as make, making a donation, but it could also be involved in advocacy and getting involved in just prop. 
but of course, you know, we'd, yeah. we'd like for you, yeah. we'd like for you to, uh, to get involved with, with prop. So support prop.org, um, subscribe to our newsletter and, um, reach out to us. And may I add, and this is coming from me, not from prop. If you're listening, talk to your physicians about prop. Ask them if they know about it. Um, she or he may be thankful to get some information that they're they're not uh, may not be aware of. Um, my doc's got it all for me, so they they hear it all from me. So they they might cringe when I walk in the office. But uh, Kat, thanks for sharing that personal story. I know we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and and uh, how painful that can be, but. The, the fuel that it gives you for your for the work um, to do what you do with such a tight budget. I get it. Uh, I get that. Believe me, um, uh, because what you do matters. Um, before you. before we finish up, anything you'd like to add to, to share with our listeners? Oh, gosh. So there is there is so much data and so much information that is coming out literally on a daily basis the uh, the amount of research that is being generated around around opioid prescribing around um, opioid use and alternatives to opioid for for addressing um, all all different types of pain it's astronomical it is mm-hmm. it, it's it's very it's difficult to keep up with and and it's difficult to sift through and find, you know, you know, what is the, what is the solid, what is the really, really good data that we want to share? Mm. So um, it is, you know, it is a, a full-time job, if you will, but that, um, that every, every person, every healthcare professional um, has a responsibility to, to be aware and to, to not perpetuate uh, a cycle in a situation that is um, is really um, it's it's killing it's killing people, and it, uh, we have a, a horrific problem with illicit opioids, fentanyl, and you know fake uh, you know drugs that are coming in from yes. from other countries. But I would ask people when they say, "Oh, well." The opioid epidemic isn't about prescription opioids anymore. It's just all about these illicit illicit drugs. Where did that start? It started in a vast majority of of people several years ago, like my sister, who was first exposed to opioids for a legitimate medical reason. There is a beginning and if we don't address the beginning for someone, then what is, what is the point of addressing the end for everyone? Right. Yeah. If we don't address the prevention, then all that we're doing is dealing with the people that are on the far end of the spectrum that are already addicted and that need treatment or are overdosing. Then again, we're somebody's throwing matches is on a fire as we're trying to put it out. Yeah. So it is it is an important issue to address. The vast majority of people that are using illicit opioids started their journey with a medically prescribed opioid. It might not have been theirs, 
It might've been somebody else's, but they started that journey with a prescription opioid. Yeah. You know, there's a reason that we have such demand because the demand was created and we can't forget about the genesis of where of that demand. Um, you know, that's going to do it for our episode of Scope of Practice. Uh, Dr. Marriott, I'd like to thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you spending your time today and your passion comes across in your voice and in your words. And, and I think that's, that is very encouraging for our listeners um, to hear other people that are very passionate about what they do and, and, you know, support prop. Uh, their website is www.supportprop.org. This is a great organization to get involved with. And please just go to their site and look what's there. And if you can help, that's great as well. Um, thanks again to Recovery Network of Programs and their Chief Executive Officer, Jennifer Kolakowski, for their financial support and for making this podcast possible today. Um, we welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor, and I can be reached directly at info at ctcertboard.org for more information. We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. Thank you very much for spending your time with us. And don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. We'll catch you next time, everybody. Thank you.